Our scripture this morning comes from Micah chapter 4. So Micah, it takes a little longer to find Micah. Obadiah, Jonah, Micah. If you've gotten to Nahum and Habakkuk, you've gone too far. Micah and chapter 4. Micah chapter 4, I'll read the entire chapter. So Micah 4 and verse 1. And it will come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and the peoples will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob that he may teach us about his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For from Zion will go forth the law, even the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he will judge between many peoples and render decisions for mighty distant nations. Then they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they train for war. Each of them will sit under his vine and under his fig tree with no one to make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. Though all the peoples walk, each in the name of his God, as for us, we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather the outcasts, even those whom I have afflicted. I will make the lame a remnant and the outcasts a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion. From now on and forever, as for you, tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you it will come. Even the former dominion will come, the kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem. Now why do you cry out loudly? Is there no king among you? Or has your counselor perished? The agony has gripped you like a woman in childbirth. Writhe in labor to give birth, daughter of Zion. Like a woman in childbirth, for now you will go out of the city, dwell in the field, and go to Babylon. There you will be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. And now many nations have been assembled against you, who say, let her be polluted, and let our eyes gloat over Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord, and they do not understand his purpose. For he has gathered them like sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, daughter of Zion. For your horn I will make iron, and your hoofs I will make bronze, that you may pulverize many peoples, that you may devote to the Lord their unjust gain and their wealth to the Lord of all the earth. The sermon this morning I hope to focus on, or to use as a text, the first four verses of this chapter. Now, congregation, in the past weeks we had a sermon on what to do with a sermon. You'll remember that from the four soils of the parable of the sower, we looked at how we can receive a sermon and make the most of it and, and 
put that sermon to work in our life to bring forth fruit to God's glory. But today I'd like to to move to the other side of that same issue, as it were, to consider the subject of preaching. Preaching and, and, and what is preaching? Now, uh, as, I, as I began to delve into this topic this week, I quickly realized I was, I was in over my head. The Bible says so much about preaching. Uh, it's, it's impossible. You know, you, you could pick so many different verses and so much different teaching in the Bible about what preaching is and, and uh, the authority of the preacher and what is a preacher supposed to do and what is the content of preaching. So I had to, of course, choose one text And uh, I chose this chapter in Micah, and I would like to consider that with you, but just know that this is just a little slice, right, of of what could be said about the subject of preaching. And also, congregation, I I would challenge you this morning as well not to think specifically just about me this morning. I know that I am your stated supply here, your your preacher, but whoever might occupy this pulpit, uh, and wherever you might go and hear a sermon, to think about the preacher and, and, and not simply to think and to limit yourself to, to me. Otherwise, this sermon might sound rather self-serving. But uh, to think about a preacher generally and even children today, uh, as you think about the, the sermon, much of what I said can be applied, and much of what I will say, can be applied to your own teachers in your school as well. So there's a broader application even than just the, the man who stands here from week to week. So I would like to consider with you then the subject of God, the great or our great teacher. In the text that we have set before us in Micah, we can see from the very first verse that Micah is seeing a vision. He's received this word from God, but this word from God is about something in the future. Micah sees the future in Chapter 4 and verse 1, and it will come about in the last days. Now that expression, the last days congregation, is a very, uh, is a very a broad one for Micah. Because for Micah, in his particular dispensation, in his, his particular time period in which he labored, the last days would be everything stretching from the first coming of Christ to the second coming. So that means you and I live in the last days because we live in that last dispensation, as it were, from the time of Christ's first coming to the time of Christ's second coming. And now Micah sees something. And what does he see? Well, he sees the mountain of the house of the Lord. And notice he says the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. It will be raised above all the hills. And now you know, again, as we, as we study the prophets, right, we know not to understand these things literally, right? We're not looking for a literal hill, right? The one's going to be 100 feet high, but the house of the Lord's going to be 120 feet high, right? That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about the prominence and the importance and the significance of the temple of the house of the Lord. That it's going to be higher and more important and established as a greater thing than all the other hills, You might say all the other pulpits that are speaking and preaching in the world today. The house of the Lord is going to be the highest one. And you notice that in the last clause there, and the peoples are streaming to it. They're flowing like a river to the house of the Lord. 
Now that's especially interesting because look, go back to chapter 3 and verse 12, the last verse of chapter 3. And what do we read there about the house of the Lord? In, verse, in, in chapter 3 and verse 12, Therefore on account of you, Zion will be plowed as a field. No hill there, right? It's plowed level and flat. Jerusalem will become a heap of ruins. And the mountain of the temple will become high places of a forest. In other words, it's just going to be a, a brush patch, okay? a, a thicket. The kind of scrub that out on your fields, if you saw it, you'd want to cut it all down to make it something productive. So now that is talking about literal Jerusalem, isn't it? That's talking about the actual city of Jerusalem is going to be plowed like a field. You know, and Jerusalem was built on a hill, right? And the Jews were so proud of that. But God said it's, it's going to be plowed flat. Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. It's going to be plundered. And then, in chapter 4, verse 1, you have, again, if you understood this literally, what is completely the contrary. Right? Because now the mountain of the house of the Lord is the highest of all the hills. Right? That shows us, right, that what we're reading in uh, chapter 4 here is now something that's to be understood of the kingdom of God in the last days when Jesus comes and establishes and begins to preach the kingdom of God. That is what's going to be the highest hills. And that is what can the peoples of the earth are going to stream to. Now, in, in our day, maybe we don't see uh, as much, right, of the peoples streaming to this hill of Zion, right, to hear the teaching of God. We do see it. And, and actually, congregation, uh, I don't study these things much, but I'm told that there's more mission and evangelistic activity taking place in the world today than ever before. And that there are revivals today taking place in nations that are far greater than anything that ever took place in the earth before. That, that comes as a surprise to me as it maybe does to you as well because again, we don't often read about these things. But so I am told. And so that in a small way, that prophecy is already being fulfilled, right? But in the last days, right? In the last day, it will be it will be visible in a way like never before, right? When God comes the second time and sets up his kingdom, then it will truly be a hill higher than every other hill all around. But this morning, especially, uh, dear friends, I want to focus on what happens when people come to this city. Because you see in verse 2, many nations will come and say, come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob. And then here, that he may teach us about his ways. That we may walk in his paths. For from Zion, or from Jerusalem, again, that's this, 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 uh, this new Jerusalem, right? Not the literal Jerusalem. Will go forth the law or the instruction, even the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. What do you see here, congregation? You see, you see a worship service, don't you? Remember the sermon that we had about the church. Remember that I said the church is a gathering, right? That's what the word, even the term church means. And that's what you have here. You have the hill of the house of the Lord and the nations from all around are streaming to it. Why? Because they're going to sit at the feet of God himself. They're going to sit at the feet of Zion and they're going to soak up his teaching. They're going to hear the Torah, the instruction of God. And they're going to sit and, and they're going to rejoice in that. And, and, and more people, again, you, you can imagine more people coming and and more from here, and then from this side, more people, and they're, they're just streaming to the house of the Lord because they want to sit 
and they want to hear the instruction of God. They want to walk in His paths. Well, what we have is a, is a service. I mean, not really that much different than what we have right here this morning, congregation. In one sense, this service right here is a fulfillment of what Micah is speaking about. That in the last days, people will come streaming to the house of God to hear the word of God. And what a beautiful picture that is. That the last day is pictured as a, a gathering, a Sunday service. And that this is now considered and represented in this chapter as the highest joy of the people of God. Right? They could have gathered for all sorts of purposes. Right? They could have gathered for all sorts of different things to do. But they gather to sit at God's feet and to receive His instruction. And that's their highest joy. Well, congregation, as I said, I want to consider with you the subject of preaching. And I think this chapter kind of gives us then a, a little picture of, of the prominence, right, and the significance of what it means to sit at God's feet and to hear His Word. Because this is the, the highest joy that the people of God will enjoy in those last days. Now, in the Bible, the, the subject of preaching, as I've already said, comes up again and again and again. The first reference to it that I could find is Noah. In the Old Testament, you have Noah, who is a preacher of righteousness. As it says in the book of Peter, a preacher of righteousness. But after Noah, you have a whole series of prophets, right? You have Samuel, right? You have Elijah and Elisha. Then you have all the minor prophets, right? We all had to thumb through the Bible to get to Micah, right? And to find it. And there's Obadiah and Jonah and Amos and Micah in there. All those prophets, right? And you come to the very last one, Malachi. And the prophets were preachers. Although there's some differences there, isn't it? Noah, to go back to Noah a minute, Noah was preaching to unconverted people, right? To unbelievers, those who were even mocking and scoffing at Noah for building the ark. That's a little differently than, different than what takes place here from Sunday to Sunday. Now, the prophets were definitely preaching to the people of God, right? They were preaching to the nation of Israel. They were preaching to those who were in covenant with God already. But even the prophets, right, they had a special message often that they received from God that they were responsible then to deliver to the people. So many of the times it was, it was more focused on a specific word that God had for his people, so, a somewhat difference there. I think, congregation, that the real, the closest thing to preaching that we have that takes place Sunday after Sunday in our churches is what you find in the book of Nehemiah. And in Nehemiah chapter 8, let me read these verses to you. So, this is Nehemiah chapter 8, and you have uh, Ezra here. And all the people gathered, and that's a key word for us, isn't it? Gathered. Gathered as one man at the square which was in front of the water gate. And they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses which the Lord had given to Israel. So now we see Ezra with the word of God in his hand, right? He's going to expound this word to them. Then Ezra brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding <coughs> on the first day of the seventh month. 
He read from it before the square, which was in front of the water gate, from early morning until midday, in the presence of men and women, those who could understand, and all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Now Ezra the scribe stood at a wooden podium, which they had made for the purpose. Right? Sound familiar? Okay, a wooden podium, which they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood a number of, of men who were assisting him. And then in verse 5, Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. Again, sound familiar? And when he opened it, all the people stood up. Now we do the opposite, don't we? Here the preacher stands up and you all sit. But in those days, the preacher would sit as a sign of his authority and bringing the word of God and the congregation would stand. Now, uh, uh, that verse 6, Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. Again, you can kind of think of a benediction there. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. Then they bowed low and worshipped the Lord with their faces uh, to the ground. Also, and then all the different names of the people who are doing this, and verse 7 is key. Jeshua, Bani, and, and all these different men, they explained the law to the people while the people remained in their place. They read from the book, right? They read from the book, the Bible, from the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. Now you see very distinctly, don't you, the, the thing that we are engaged in here week from week, right? The, the, the law of God, the, the instruction of God is opened up, it's read, right? And the preacher attempts then to give the sense or to give the meaning of what he reads so that people understand it. Now this congregation is really what I would say is the closest approximation to the kind of thing that takes place, uh, not the closest approximation, it is what takes place here, right? The preacher reads from the scripture and he gives the sense. Now, what happened here, congregation, is that as Israel began to disperse away from Jerusalem, they continued to gather to hear the word of God explained from the rabbis, and those places then became known as synagogues. And synagogue is really almost an exact synonym of church. Synagogue also means a gathering. And so as the Jews gathered to hear the Torah, right, the, the law of God explained to them, those became synagogues. And synagogues had their own leadership, they had elders, they had their own services, their own gatherings, and their own life. And they became, many of them became the center of the life of a community in Jewish society. Now, what happened then is, <clears throat> you can read that in the, in, when Jesus came on the scene, what did he do with the synagogue? Well, I think you know, don't you? Is he... Uh, he took over, or he, he used the synagogue. In Luke 4, verse 15, it says, And Jesus began teaching in their synagogues. Right? So as the Jews would gather for worship, as they gathered to hear the word of God, right? And as Jesus came, and as the apostles began their work of proclaiming the kingdom of God, they also came into the synagogues. And they were given opportunities there. The synagogues actually were quite open to this, uh, to having other men come. And to, and to teach from the, from the pulpit. And the synagogues were open to Jesus, and Jesus came, and he taught in the synagogues. And what do you read in the book of Acts? That when Paul comes to the city of Thessalonica, he looked up the synagogue. 
and he preached there. When he comes to the city of Berea, he finds the synagogue and he preaches there. And in all these different cities, he comes. He enters the synagogue and he teaches and preaches from those places. Then, as Christianity begins to grow and they begin to have their own gatherings, now they're not called synagogues anymore, but now the term church, right? But the same practice is carried over. The church has elders. The church has worship services. And especially the church has preaching week after week. The law, the, the gospel is explained and expounded from a pulpit to people who listen and hear. You can think of the Great Commission. The Great Commission. And before Jesus left this earth, what did he say? He said, Go ye out into all the world and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And then finally, Pentecost. Think about Pentecost congregation. Because here was one of the very first gatherings of Christians. Gathering as a church, not as a synagogue. No longer sitting at the feet of the Jewish rabbis, but now sitting at the feet of the great rabbi, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the king of the kingdom, the Messiah. And when Jesus dies, he sends his spirit. And his spirit brings gifts. And what are those gifts? Well, on Pentecost, what was the gift for? What did the gift accomplish? Well, everybody in that gathering, despite all their different languages and backgrounds and ethnicities, they all heard the word of God in their own language. There you see again, don't you, that the Spirit of God comes down upon the church. Why? To give them the gift of speaking and of teaching the gospel. And in that extraordinary time, of even giving them immediately the ability to speak foreign languages such that the gospel could go forth to everyone and that everyone could hear the gospel in their own language. Again, you see, you see the, the role of preaching in the Christian church, don't you? That from the very earliest days, God puts this emphasis on the preaching of the word of God, the exposition and the application of the word of God to the people of God. And in those extraordinary days of Pentecost, God gives gifts to that, to that end. And later on in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians, where Paul is talking about uh, the gifts of the Spirit, what does Paul think about the gifts of the Spirit? Back in the Corinthian church, there were people who had the ability to speak in tongues, there were ability to, to prophesy, some had a word of knowledge, all these extraordinary gifts, Right? Uh, and they were extraordinary. They were miraculous. And Paul doesn't discount them. He's not opposed to them. But you know what he says in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 19, in the middle of all this exposition about all these spiritual gifts, he says, However, in the church, I desire to speak five words with my mind so that I may instruct others also, rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. What's Paul saying there? He's saying there it's far better to have five just ordinary words explaining the word of God and pressing it upon you than to have 10,000 words in a tongue, in a language that no one can understand. And it does no good. It does not profit anybody because people cannot understand it. 
But when somebody stands here and speaks to your mind such that you can hear it, you can understand it, you can believe it, and you can practice it. Now Paul says five of those words is worth 10,000 of the other words. And Paul's not against speaking in tongues. He does not speak disparagingly of it. He says do it in private. That's between you and God. But again, Paul's emphasis is on speaking with the understanding so that people can hear and understand and practice. And so, congregation, that little, that little thumbnail sketch then from Noah, from the very beginning of the Old Testament, all the way to the end of the, of the church, uh, the times of the church with Paul and the apostles, you see the emphasis that is placed you a definition of preaching, that it would be just this, simply the exposition and the application of the Word of God. That's, it's just that simple. Explaining what the Word of God means. Right? And that's what we try to do week after week. This is what the Word of God means. But we don't stop there. right? If we stop there, it might be a good Bible study, it might be a good lecture, a good lesson. right? And, and there's nothing, nothing bad about that. right? But preaching goes on to take the meaning of the Word of God and to apply it to your own time and your own place in your own life. But those two things then, the exposition and the application of the Word of God. And from the time of Noah, through all the prophets, through Moses, right on into the coming the time of Jesus and the apostles, that was the, the, uh, the, you might say, pride of place was given to that discipline. Well, congregation, I'd like to apply then uh, these principles to us today. And the first thing I'd like to speak about, congregation, is the preacher's authority. The preacher's authority. And congregation, let it be a settled principle amongst every one of us that no man, no matter his degrees behind his name, no matter how studied he may be, no matter if he's ordained or not, no matter how hard he pounds the pulpit, Nobody has any authority in this pulpit except so far as what he says is consistent with the Word of God. When the preacher stands here and says, Thus saith the Lord, and you can see in your own Bible that what he is saying is the Word of God, then that is the Word of God to you. Then the preacher falls into the background. Then it's not Chris Singles' mind anymore. That is the word, that I'm just the mouthpiece, right? Paul elsewhere will use the, the, uh, the picture of a trumpet. I'm, I'm just the trumpet, I'm just the instrument. But when what is said here, from me or from any preacher, is consistent with the word of God, then that is the word of God. And that has a binding authority on every one of you. But congregation, when anyone stands here and gives his opinion on this or on that, it may be good, it may be interesting, it may even be right, but it is not the Word of God. And He has no authority over anyone. A congregation that's given us very vividly in, in, the, in the text that we read, right? They come to the mountain of the house of God to hear the Word of God, to hear His teaching. And no preacher has any authority, any authority whatsoever, except when He comes with the word of God. In fact, congregation, when anyone claims to be the voice of God, but doesn't come with the word of God, the Bible has a term for that. That's called a false prophet. 
And when Jeremiah talks about the false prophets, in Jeremiah 14 and verse 14, Then the Lord said to me, The prophets are prophesying falsehood in my name. Right? They're claiming to come with the word of God. But Jeremiah says they're prophesying falsehood. I have neither sent them, nor commanded them, nor spoken to them. They are prophesying to you a false vision, divination, futility, and the deception of their own minds. Now again, when someone speaks to you their own opinion, that's due all the respect that of course we would give to anybody. But when someone stands in this pulpit, right, and claims to bring the word of God, but it's not in the word of God or it's contrary to the word of God, then their authority ceases, it stops. A preacher's authority begins and ends with the word of God. A congregation, I, I stand on that point because I think that, especially in our circles, we tend to elevate the preacher just a little too highly. We tend to think in our own minds that preachers get their sermons by kind of brushing up against heaven and hearing direct words from God. It's not the case, congregation. I study the Bible just like you do. You say, well, you know, maybe I went to seminary for a few years. But congregation, the Spirit of God is the one who teaches us the Scriptures through our own study and through our own application to it. And so I and any preacher has no authority apart from when they bring the Word of God. But congregation, that brings then a, a responsibility to us then, doesn't it? Because when a preacher stands here in this pulpit and he brings the Word of God, and you can see it with your own mind, in your own eyes, in your own Bible, then that is the Word of God to you. It cannot just be dismissed. You cannot just pass it off as, well, that was a, that was a fine sermon, right? No. That is the Word of God to you. It must be submitted to. It must be obeyed. We don't want to just be hearers of the Word of God, but obeyers, people who put into practice the things that we teach. You know, I often think to myself, and perhaps you have the same thought, uh, you know, what an what a incredible privilege it would be if I could go uh, and, and have a half hour with, with John Calvin, right, or, or Jonathan Edwards. Or, oh, if I, could, if I could just have 15 minutes at the Synod of Dora, right, and to speak to those great godly men who had so much insight into the Scriptures and so much learning and so many gifts from God. And that's true. I, I understand that, congregation. I have that a lot. But congregation, every week, we sit at God's mountain. We sit at His house. And God's teaching flows from this house, from this mountain to us. And we get 30, 40, 50 minutes with God Himself. We get to sit at God's feet. That's why I say it's not just a responsibility, but what a privilege. What an immense privilege. Where else would you want to be this morning? Where else would you want to be this morning that you get 30, 40, 50 minutes with God himself sitting at his feet and taking in his instruction? So it is both a responsibility and a privilege. Congregation, my second point of application then kind of flows out of the first one. If no preacher has any authority except when he brings the word of God, a preacher's authority begins and ends with the word of God. If that's the case, then that means that sometimes this preacher, me, any preacher, is going to be fallible. They're going to make mistakes. You're going to hear things from, the, from, the, from your pew, right, that you think, that doesn't sound quite right. That, 
that doesn't seem to be consistent with this teaching or, or with that teaching. In other words, congregation, in this congregation, that means that people in the pew are going to disagree with something they heard the preacher say. And that's to be expected. Because I'm not a pope standing here speaking ex cathedra, infallible. Right? I'm, I'm a fallible instrument bringing the word of God. And that's why in one sense, that's appropriate. That people will disagree. People will hear things in the, in the pew that they disagree with. In one sense, we... Well, we wouldn't want a congregation in which there were never any disagreements. What kind of discernment would there be? The very fact that there are disagreements and debates and discussions in our churches about points of theology is because we hold these things so highly. We hold these things so dearly. And that's why there is at times these disagreements that arise. But congregation, it's also so critical that we learn how to manage these disagreements. I trust you, you, you understand that, that if, if these disagreements become tools of Satan to tear us apart, then we're doomed as a church. But congregation, I would dare say that we're just as doomed as a church if we never have any disagreements. And we just talk about things that we all agree about. So I want to spend some time actually considering how can we manage these disagreements? I have four points here that I would like to press upon you of what to do when you hear something that you disagree with, whether it be from me or from any preacher. How can we manage those disagreements in a God-honoring way? And in the first place, congregation, this one is so obvious, right? Did you understand correctly? Right? That's where we have to begin, right? Because there's so many things, right, that you, can, you misheard it. I've always been astonished as a teacher how something I said when I was teaching in the classroom how it went home in, in translation, how terribly <coughs> garbled it got. <coughs> and, you know, people would call me up and say, did you say this? <laughs> I wonder, now, how did that possibly get from, you know, what I said? So in the first place, it's necessary to find out, did you understand the preacher correctly? Talk to someone else. Did you hear this? Did, did the preacher say something about that? Did I understand that correctly? And of course, you should try to put the best possible interpretation upon what was said. Don't, don't try to, you know, push the thing as far to the extreme as you can, whatever you said. And then, of course, you should come to the pastor, right? And as a pastor, I can speak for myself. Now, I welcome these kinds of comments. Somebody's listening to my sermons. That's encouraging to me, right? And they're coming now to ask for clarification. So that's good. That's something that we welcome. You can ask the pastor, but congregation... Uh, on, this, on this first point, again, when you come to the pastor, start with that. Pastor, did I understand you correctly to say this and this? How far, how effective will your conversation with the pastor be if you come in and say, Pastor, why is it that you don't believe in the inspiration of the Bible? That, that's not going to be a terribly effective opening line, is it? When you just launch into it with guns blazing like that. Start in a way of humility. Pastor, did I understand you correctly? So that in the first place, understanding. In the second place, you can write down there, grade, grade. And by this I mean grade the importance of the disagreement. You heard something. You think, you have a question in your mind. Is that, is that really correct? Right? 
Well, now it's, a, it's, it's critical congregation that we grade the importance. How, how significant, how important of an issue is this? Was there a disagreement about the interpretation of Scripture? Did the pastor interpret a text differently than you've always understood it? Now, congregation, those are happy disagreements. You can bring that to the preacher. He'd love to discuss that with you. So many passages of Scripture can be, can be taken in different ways. Right? And when I stand behind here in the pulpit, when, when any preacher stands here, he has to make a decision about that, right? Now, sometimes I will come and say the verse can go this way, it can be understood that way, but most of the time I have to make a decision, right? And in prayer to God, and in a study of the context and all the other tools at my disposal, I make a decision about what the text means. I'm fallible. Every preacher is. And to me, it's an encouraging thing when people come back and say, well, I understand that text differently. And in, again, in the context of love and humility with a teachable spirit, we can move forward on that. And that's a happy thing. But the interpretation of Scripture is not something then that you would uh, immediately run to the elders with, with a complaint about the orthodoxy of your pastor. That's not something to be, uh, you know, it's not of that serious of a nature. On the contrary, when there are issues that threaten the life of the church, when there is a disagreement of that kind, right? And in in this category, I put issues like, you know, the discussion that we had in the the Christian Reformed Church about the the, uh, ordination of women to office. All the discussions surrounding Genesis 1 and, and, the, and the creation story there. Right? Now we're not saying that everybody who disagrees with us on those points is, is lost, is going to hell. But we are saying that the way such people read the Bible is so bad that it threatens the very life of the church. Now that's an issue that you take to the pastor. Did I understand you correctly? And if after having made those, after having had that conversation, such issues then need to be taken to the elders and committed to them for their action. And I have to say, congregation, more than likely that you're not the only person who will have heard such a thing and you won't be the first person to go to the elders to talk about it. But that is a responsibility of every lay person. And I, I shouldn't even say lay person because we're all lay people, okay? We're all people uh, before God uh, struggling to understand his word. But those are the things to do. Then grade the importance of the, agree- of the disagreement. Don't raise every issue to the level of an issue that threatens the life of the church. Right? That would be foolish. Right? <clears throat> in the third place. In the third place. Now let us assume that you have, you've gone through these first a couple issues or these first steps, if I can call them that. And in the third place, you meet with the pastor. Right? You meet with the preacher. You sit down to discuss this with him. Dear friend, are you prepared to listen to his explanation. That's the key word here that I would write down on that third point. Listen. Are you prepared to listen to his explanation? Always considering the possibility that you may be wrong. Right? That's what it means to have a teachable spirit. That means to sit down and to say, I may be wrong on this issue. Now you don't, you don't yield up your uh, mind to the pastor, right? That's what people do in the, in the Roman Catholic and the Eastern Orthodox churches, right? They, they just submit to the bishop. Whatever he says, they, they go. No, the preacher has no, I go back to my first point, the preacher has no authority except what is consistent with the word of God. But now with that word of God in your hand, you may humbly go and speak with the preacher, with the elder, the pastor, perhaps again, children, one of your teachers may have said something. And you do it with that teachable spirit. You listen to his conversation. If you go in there with a, with a point to make, and you're going to beat the teacher over the head, or the preacher, because you, you know how this is, and, and, and you know what he said, and you're not going to stop to listen, 
That's not going to be terribly effective, is it? <clears throat> the, fourth, the fourth point here, congregation, is context. What is the context? In other words, what is your own previous attitude been towards the preacher and towards the pastor, towards the church in general? In other words, does this question that you have, this disagreement that you're raising, come from a position of love and a support with a desire for the unity of the church? Or are you constantly making criticisms? Congregation, I knew a pastor one time who didn't even get out of the pulpit and somebody had texted him a disagreement about it. He just heard him say it. He hadn't even, got, he hadn't even walked down the aisle yet. And his phone was going in his pocket. You know, I, I, and I'm just going to be perfectly honest with you today, congregation. Pastors learn just to kind of dismiss such complaints and disagreements. And maybe that's not entirely right, but it's just a fact of the case. That if you're constantly harping and hammering away at the pastor, right, and the preacher with your disagreements, you, you kind of gain a reputation for yourself. And the pastor's like, well, here she comes again, or here he comes again, you know. He's been here so many times, and... And again, it doesn't come from a context of love and a support and concern for the pastor. On the contrary, not to dwell on the negative here, but on the contrary, congregation, when it does come from that love and support, those are opportunities for growth. Those are good things. Pastors welcome those kinds of interactions. Again, that means that people are engaging with the preaching of the word of God. And so many preachers are discouraged in that point. But when somebody comes and says, Pastor, I'm not sure I agree with you what you said about this. Those are happy things. Those are good things that can become opportunities for growth. Again, we don't want a congregation that has no disagreements, never has a discussion, never has an issue. I want to close out this, this application, this point two congregation, by just reading something to you. And again, this is a warning to every one of us. In Proverbs 6, verse 16, it says, There are six things which the Lord hates. Now, congregation, I trust that when the Scripture says there's, these are the things the Lord hates, we all prick up our ears to listen. There are six things which the Lord hates. And the very last one is this. One who spreads strife among brothers. And I want you to ponder that. I want you to ponder that point as you think about what happens and how to manage these disagreements that happen between congregation and pastor. There be six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven, which are an abomination to him. And there's a list of six things there. And then the last one, one who spreads strife among brothers. My friend, if you're, if you're a person given to anger, if you're a person given to great passionate pride for your own opinions... You may want to step back. You may want to check yourself. You may want to spend some time in prayer to keep yourself, to keep a tight grip on your feelings, as it were, and not to say something you're going to regret. And to approach that issue such that we all can grow together as a body of believers. I always say that it is a mark of Christian maturity when you can discuss the most difficult, disagreeable or controversial issues in Christian theology and in Christian life in a cool, rational, and God-honoring way. That is a mark of Christian maturity. And congregation, let that be our congregation. 
Don't just bury every issue. We, we want to bring these issues to the surface. We want to discuss them. That's healthy. That's good. But let's do it in a God-honoring way and never in a way that God hates. I want to close the sermon by going back to the text because the text makes this so beautifully clear to us. And in Micah 4, we read in verse 3, and he will judge between many peoples. In other words, there will be disagreements. There will be disputes between these peoples. And God will make decisions for mighty distant nations. And what will happen then? Congregation, may God grant that to us. They will hammer their swords into plowshares. There's been swords in this congregation. I know there have been. It's time to hammer those swords into plowshares. Notice, don't bury the sword. Don't, get, don't throw away the sword. But beat it into something useful. Make that sword into a plow. Make that spear, perhaps, again, I don't know what your situation was, but if you were using a spear to stab people, to cut them up, beat it into a pruning fork. A pruning hook. Again, a weapon of war converted to an implement for usefulness. And then I can close the sermon, congregation, by it's time to go plowing, isn't it? It's time to take our swords, to beat them into plowshares, and to get to work, to plow, to use our spears as pruning hooks, to use them for good in the congregation of God. Congregation, that's what we can do with the preaching of the Word of God. Not infallible. I made that very clear this morning. The preaching is not infallible. But as we work together as a congregation to understand and to apply, and remember that's what preaching is, the exposition and the application, we work to understand and apply the Word of God. We embrace even our disagreements. And we make those swords to be plowshares. And we make the spears to be pruning hooks. Then we make useful things, right? Then I can tie that right back into the sermon about the, the soils, right? Then the soil can be plowed up. And we can work on each other. We can come together as a congregation. We can discuss. We can disagree. We can move forward in our understanding of the Word of God. And it becomes a useful thing. Our fields will be plowed up. And the seed of the Word of God can drop in them. And bring forth fruit to His glory. That's my prayer for Covenant United Reformed Church congregation. It's my prayer for the sermons and the preaching that come from week to week. And I pray, congregation, that that would be our experience to God's glory. May God grant it for his name's sake. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty God, we confess before you this morning that there's been a lot of swords, a lot of spears brandished in this congregation, and not always to the best certainly not always accomplishing good. But Lord, please help us this morning to repent of what was done poorly in the past and to beat our swords into plowshares, something useful, and our spears into pruning hooks. Please, Lord, remember us and bless us as a congregation. Help us to move forward, making every effort to understand your word, to apply it correctly, and to bring forth fruit to your glory. Lord, what a glorious blessing it would be as a congregation if we could unite around these points and rejoice in God our Savior, rejoice, rejoicing in his teaching, coming to the mountain of the hill of the house of the Lord, sitting at your feet, 
and hearing the instruction that comes from God week after week. Lord, please help me in preaching. This is an impossible task. It's too great a responsibility for me, Lord, for anyone. But we pray, O God, for your blessed spirit's anointing, that indispensable anointing which enables us to do what is far beyond our own ability, and that we might stand here, O God, and speak your word in faithfulness, in truth, and uprightness. And please forgive, Lord, the many times when we have spoken our own word, when we've put our own spin, as it were, upon your word. I pray, O God, for forgiveness. And I pray that you would bless us as congregation and pastor to go forward, to make mention of your righteousness, yea, of yours only. Lord, will you bless the catechism and Sunday school instruction as it will now take place, also the adult class. And we pray, O God, that again, we would gather at your feet to hear your word, to walk in your ways. Lord, to whom else shall we go? You are the great teacher. You are our great teacher. And so we come to you and say, Lord, please teach us. Forgive us for our unteachable spirit and make us to be plowed up soil, ready to receive the word of God. Hear our prayer, Lord. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.